Welcome to Journey to Esquire, the podcast. I'm Jocelyn Hardrick, founder and president of Diversity Access Pipeline, Inc., the company behind this podcast and other great programs like Journey to Esquire Scholarship and Leadership Program, which provides $2,000 cash scholarships to third-year law students and internships to second-year law students, along with leadership training and mentors. And Journey to Esquire, the blog, which provides insightful articles to help navigate you through law school and beyond. Find out more on our website, www.journeytoesquire.com. Hey, have you heard about Anchor? It's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that let you record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer, just like I'm doing now. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can hear it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to another bonus episode featuring Journey to Esquire and oral history. In this episode, we pass the mic to Donald R. Odom. He's a St. Petersburg, Florida native, and he graduated from Gibbs High School, University of South Florida, and the University of Florida Law School. He ultimately went on to practice law and became the first of many African-Americans who would serve in government entities, including the Hillsborough County Attorney's Office. From 2005 until his retirement, he served as the Deputy County Attorney. His practice has primarily been utilities and local government law. He has some great stories about his time at Gibbs High School, at the University of South Florida, and his graduation from University of Florida Law School in two and a half years. I had a great time interviewing Mr. Odom, who was thoroughly enjoying his retirement. Thank you for listening to another great episode. Enjoy. My name is Donald Odom, and I am a retired uh, government attorney. I was a uh, deputy county attorney for Hillsborough County. I was born in St. Petersburg, Florida. And uh, when I was about six years old, my parents moved to Jacksonville Beach, Florida, where I uh, lived until I was uh, about 14, ready for high school. There's a little bit of an interesting story why I uh, was sent to St. Petersburg to live with my, uh, with my grandparents. Uh, the Duval County Schools had been discredited uh, at that time. The, the school system was, was so bad, uh, they discredited the whole school system. And there were doubts about if you could get into colleges or where you could go to college. And so my parents thought it would be better uh, to, to, to send me to uh, St. Petersburg. But I, well, I lived with my grandparents and I attended, uh, I graduated from Gibbs High School in 1968. Uh, of course, uh, during those days, uh, segregation was still in existence, and had I remained in Jacksonville, I would have gone to a segregated school, Douglas Anderson, which was a very long bus ride from where I lived uh, on Jacksonville Beach. And of course, Gibbs High School was, uh, was, was segregated also in St. Petersburg. Uh, but uh, I, I decided to be a lawyer when I was about 12 years old. And my basically sole motivation for wanting to do that was Thurgood Marshall. I was always very interested, even as a child, in current events, uh, civil rights. Uh, I, I, 
as a, as a child, I remember reading the newspapers every day, and it was something that I really looked forward to. And and my my parents didn't have to encourage me to do it. It was just something that I enjoy enjoyed. And and I look back on it, and I look at their socioeconomic status. Neither of them graduated high school. I, to this day, I don't know why we even had a newspaper subscription, but I'm glad that we did. And so I was, I was a great admirer of, of Thurgood Marshall, uh, and, and even at that age, I understood uh, the things that he was doing uh, and using the law to further uh, the prospects for, for, for black people in this country. So he was my, my total inspiration for wanting to, to go to law school. As a student at Gibbs uh, High School, uh, I was uh, I, I was very impressed with uh, with first of all uh, the students, and really impressed with the caliber of the of the teachers we had. And I understand that there are a lot of uh, advantages that come with desegregation and the integration of schools, but. In, in my opinion, I'm not sure that the quality of the of the teachers uh, that we have now is equal to that that I had when I was in high school. And I think there's a simple explanation for that: is that uh, uh, educated black people in those days had very few options, so many of them uh, gravitated towards education. So as a result, we had very high uh, caliber of of educators. Many of them. Have, classroom teachers had, had master's degrees, and I, I, I would like to think that had it been a different time, some of my high school teachers would have been corporate executives or attorneys or, or uh, major entrepreneurs, who knows, but they just didn't have the opportunity. So many of them uh, gravitated towards education, which I think benefited us at the time. Uh, Gibbs High School, uh, uh, interestingly enough, was was named after Jonathan Gibbs, and he was uh, uh, a, a black man who rose to prominence in Florida uh, during Reconstruction. He was actually, I believe, uh, he 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 held a cabinet position, and I believe it was Secretary of Education, but I'm not sure. Uh, my, my memory fa uh, fails me, but he was a very distinguished and accomplished man, uh, particularly during his era. And uh, from what I can understand, he became so successful, uh, he was one of those people that uh, engendered a lot of resentment from the, from the white community. And so he was forced to leave Florida at some point, you know, because of threats and things like that. But, but uh, for, the, for, for those of you who didn't know, that's how Gibbs High School got its name. So uh, I graduated from Gibbs in 1968. Uh, I, I, I had applied to only one college, and that was Vanderbilt. And I, was only, I only applied to Vanderbilt because I was invited to. Uh, I, I am the first uh, college graduate from, from my family, so I really had no guidance in terms of how to prepare for college and how to get scholarships and where to apply. So I only did what people tell me and someone someone told me to apply for Vanderbilt, which I applied for and I didn't get in. Uh, it would have taken a tremendous amount of financial aid had I been accepted. Uh, so my plan after high school was to attend uh, St. Petersburg Junior College, as it was called at the time. It's now called St. Petersburg College. So that summer, 
I was working, saving money to buy a car and to go to college, and I was going to continue to, uh, to live with my grandparents. And I just got a telephone call out of, the, out of the blue from one of the teachers at Gibbs. And I believe it was Mr. Ponder, and he, he told me that uh, he had gotten wind of, of a scholarship at the University of South Florida and asked me if I was interested. So I said, sure. And, and uh, I was awarded a scholarship at the University of South Florida, which, which covered uh, two years, all expenses paid. And then, of course, uh, the, the third and fourth years I had to, you know, find uh, funding, which actually was, was, wasn't, wasn't a problem. I got loans. But that's how I ended up at, at the University of South Florida. And uh, I graduated in 1972. Uh, uh, when I enrolled at, at at South Florida. I lived in a dorm. I was one of, I believe, uh, 40 students that lived on campus at the time. Uh, so that, that was an interesting experience. I, I had never gone to uh, class with a white person before. I went to USF. And so I, I, of course, I was a little apprehensive, but of course, when, you know, when I attended a few classes, I kind of quickly realized that I had nothing to fear. Uh, so so uh, teachers there were very good at, at building up your self-confidence and they used to, uh, they used to uh, consistently remind us that you know times were changing and that we were going to have to compete with white people you know in the future and so they, uh, they were they were very conscientious about uh, having us to, to uh, to, to learn things, even in terms of eti etiquette and, 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 and posture and how you carry yourself, things that would make us uh, successful uh, in the uh, in, in, in in the world once we once we graduated. Uh, my experience at uh, USF uh, was probably typical for a, a, a black student at a predominantly uh, white college uh, during that time. Obviously, I didn't know uh, what to expect. Uh, there, there were, I think, about 100 black students uh, enrolled at USF at the time, and I, and I believe the student population was, I think, around 8,000. Uh, I believe about 40 of us actually lived on campus, lived on, in the dorms. Uh, I, I, I thought that uh, actually that the white students would be a lot more advanced than, than I was because of some of the uh, deficiencies, you know, like, you know, the, the old cliche, you know, that people my age say, well, we, we got the old textbooks, you know, after the white students got done with them, then they would send them to us and they'd all be written over and the backs would be torn off. Well, that was true. Uh, our labs were, uh, you know, uh, not up to standards. Uh, so, you know, we, we had reason to believe that maybe we had gotten an inferior education. But once I got to the University of South Florida and started competing with the white students, I found that to, to not, not to be the case. Uh, after graduating from, uh, well, I, I talked about the the dearth of uh, black students on campus, but there were no black professors when I was at the university, when I arrived at the University of South Florida. 
Uh, I believe we we did we, we subsequently got what we were uh, adjunct professors. Uh, I'm trying to remember who uh, there was a a, a, a a Reverend Dr. Smith who was a minister from St. Petersburg. He was an adjunct professor, and uh, there was one other whose name I can't remember now. I believe the first real professor we got was was Dr. Dudley Wayne Dudley. Who taught, who taught African American studies. So as a result of, you know, that problem, you know, very few black students, no few black professors, uh, we were somewhat active politically as students, and that's probably one reason why I never joined a fraternity. I was always, you know, we, we, we sort of like, felt like you had to be politically active, but you had, you know, be in a fraternity, and I chose to be politically active, even though some of the fraternities got chartered while I was at South Florida. I never, I never uh, joined one. So, as a result of, of my role on campus, I did serve as uh, as the president of the Black Student Union uh, for for a term. Uh, we did, we did have a couple of marches on campus and a couple of uh, a couple of demonstrations. Uh, actually, my cousin, who was a few years older than me. He had been in the Air Force and he came back, uh, actually led a couple of the protests uh, that we had at the University of South Florida. They, they have a, uh, a pageant now that's called the Miss Uhuru pageant. They still have it. My late wife was the first Miss Black Uhuru. Yeah, uh, Barbara was the first Miss Black Uhuru. So uh, it, was, it was a very interesting experience. We as, as, as black students, of course, we all knew one another. We all supported one another, and uh, the upperclassmen went out of their way to, you know, to assist us. So it was it was a real kind of a character building experience, and, and, and I think I got a lot of, a lot out of it. I worked uh, at uh, at USF. Uh, I was a tutor uh, for uh, for for elementary school kids. We had a, a program there they call intensive tutorial and and I worked on that for, for about three years I think. So I really enjoyed that also. I, I started law school, I think it was in in seventy four. Again I didn't know what to expect. I applied to Howard and actually they 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 told me that my application didn't reach them uh before the, the the deadline, which I don't understand, because I mailed it like you know a couple of days before, but that's what they told me. So I don't know if I would have gotten accepted or not. But I but I'd also applied to UF, and they did accept me with a with a a, a fairly good financial package. But my wife, uh, you know, still had to work, you know, to kind of support us through uh, law school. So obviously, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, so I arrived on campus, uh, or we, we arrived on campus uh, for classes. And uh, I think at the time there was, gosh, I should have I asked somebody before I came. There, there, were, there were very few uh, black students, probably, probably no more than 30 in the law school. Uh, and I think there were maybe eight in my class, maybe. As I said, I graduated in uh, in 1972. Uh, I got married in my senior year. I married my uh, my high school uh, sweetheart. Her name uh, her name was Barbara Hill, and we quickly had our first child, a girl. Uh, 
and uh, I worked after graduation. I graduated, as I said, I graduated in '72. Of course, always with the idea in the back of my head that I would eventually go to law school. So I worked a couple of years. I think I worked as a uh, as a as a debt collector for a while, and I worked as a youth uh, counselor for a while. It was about two and a half, three years before I was able to uh, get get into law school. Uh, so Barbara and I, with uh, our daughter, uh, went to Gainesville and University of Florida. And uh, at the time, we were on the quarter system, so I was in a real hurry. So I, I went year-round. I never took a break, and I was able to graduate in six quarters, which was like two and a half years. I don't know if you can still do that or not. So uh, when I graduated uh, law school, uh, of course, I was on the job search and uh, there were very few of course black lawyers in the community and white firms were not hiring uh, but uh, the first lawyer that I ever met whose name was Ike Williams had a firm in St. Petersburg and uh, he had a partner uh, Morris Milton Williams and Milton and they hired me as a law clerk before I passed the bar uh, at the, the stunning salary of $8,500 a year. And when I passed the bar, I got a big raise. I got up to $9,000 a year. So, but it was a, it was a, it was a community-based law firm. We did everything. Uh, we did, you know, personally, personal injury was always the bread and butter, but we did criminal and, and, and I did a lot of social security work, believe it or not. I don't know how, but they kept coming in. So, uh, I think I stayed there about four, about four years, and then uh, someone came to me uh, with with my first public sector job, which was at uh, the Health and Human Services, the state of Florida, Health and Human Services, and I worked. I only worked there for about uh, I think it was less than two years, uh, and my second public sector job came along, which was the uh, assistant city attorney for the city of St. Petersburg. And uh, I was the first uh, uh, African-American uh, assistant city attorney that he had. Uh, uh, Wilson, Judge, Judge Wilson had, had clerked there before, but, but he never became an assistant city attorney, so I was the first assistant city attorney in the city of St. Petersburg. So, the, 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 the big shock about law school uh, was that it was unlike regular academic study and they used the Socratic method and of course you had to you had to get used to that uh, you know I, I was talking to someone about uh, someone asked me well why aren't there more uh, computer classes for law schools and I said well because they do the Socratic method and it's hard to do that on a computer and I was explain, trying to explain to them that that's part of the training to sit there and not know if the professor is going to call on you but be ready to respond if the professor calls on you and respond in front of your peers so that's I think a, a, an important part of, of the legal education uh, we were all of course you know we, we, we were all sort of uh, as black students, we, we all kind of thought maybe that there was something uh, not 
straight about degrading, but of course you can never prove anything like that, you know, and so, and so, you know, what do you do? You just go and you, and you, do, you, you do your best, you know. Uh, certain professors had, you know, a reputation, you know, for, for uh, being better to black students, and of course everybody wanted to take their classes, and others, you know, not so much. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's something that was uh, maybe unique to me is I never belonged to a study group when I was in law school, and, I, and, and when I look back on it now, and, and and I talk to people, almost everybody belonged to a study group. I just, I guess, I ne just never really uh, realized how important it was or how it could have helped me. But I was, I was just, I just always did it on my own. Uh, so. Uh, Took the bar in 77. I graduated in, in, uh, in uh, December of uh, 76. Took the bar in 77 and passed it and went to work for, uh, for Mr. Williams. Uh, he, he was a very good lawyer. Uh, he he, 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 he uh, was a, a real resource to the community there in St. Petersburg. He did a lot of civil rights work and his partner, uh, uh, Morris Milton, also did a lot, of, a lot of civil rights work. So with them as mentors, I actually uh, got involved in some political things and some civic things when I lived in St. Petersburg. Uh, I, was, I was chairman of the Legal Redress Committee uh, for the St. Petersburg NAACP. I belonged to uh, the St. Petersburg Community Alliance, which was a uh, a uh, race race relations group. Uh, I was a member of the uh, of the uh, Charter Review Board uh, back in the uh, 70s, uh, in, in in the early 80s, and uh, they met to uh, review and make make uh, changes to the St. Petersburg City Charter. And one of the and it's it's interesting. One of my biggest accomplishments occurred very early in my career uh, because as a member of that board I was able to uh, assist in getting a new district map drawn for elections that made it more favorable that someone from the black community could be elected to the city council. So that still stands and hopefully that would be kind of my legacy back to work with Mr. Williams and one of my one of my friends called me when they got the uh, the vacancy at the county attorney's office and I actually went in and interviewed for it and uh, and, and I was hired. Uh, George uh, Butler uh, preceded me there. He was there when I got there. So George was the first African American uh, at the at the Hillsborough County Attorney's Office as an assistant county attorney. Uh, for the first, jeez, uh, from from '85 when I started until my wife passed in 2003, I commuted from St. Petersburg to Tampa to work. My wife was was working there, and my kids were in school there, so I just opted to just just commute. Uh, Barbara uh, decided to go into the ministry uh, at a, at a, a later, later in life, in her 40s, and she did become a United Methodist uh, minister. 
when she was in her early 40s. Uh, she pastored uh, a, a relatively large integrated church in St. Petersburg. Uh, and, uh, but she was, she was only able to do that for, I think she was a minister for less than two, 10 years before, before she passed away. She was the pastor of Lakewood United Methodist Church in St. In St. Petersburg. Uh, so uh, when she passed, I decided to move to Hillsborough County. And so uh, I got involved with uh, with the University of South Florida, the uh, the African American Advisory Committee. I've been a member of that over at USF. I'm a life member of the NAACP. I worked on a couple of voter registration drives here in uh, in, in St. Petersburg, uh, but. My tenure at the county attorney's office, which lasted from what, about 80, 85 until uh, 2012, was, was mostly positive. I came into the office at a time of rapid expansion, and I believe I was the, I was the 12th lawyer that they hired. And at, at our height, we were up to, I think, I think 50 lawyers. So I was able to kind of mature as the need for leadership uh, developed. I just I was there, and I, and I tried to be prepared to step into into those you know leadership roles. So eventually, I became a section head, uh, the uh, uh, mun uh, municipal services section, and I ended up being a utilities lawyer, uh, which is sort of the complete opposite and has nothing to do with what I wanted to do. Being a fan of Thurgood Marshall, I always thought that I would be, you know, a civil rights lawyer. But of course, that whole, you know, uh, practice had changed so much over the years, and uh, you know, it just was not something that I had an opportunity opportunity to do. So it was interesting. Uh, was was a, a good learning experience, and. Uh, Actually, it was the first time that I'd ever, uh, I think, uh, well, I practiced at, uh, at, at, uh, at, at the state, which was a large agency, but, but, but the office where I worked only had two lawyers. So the city attorney's office was the first agency where I worked, where we had multiple lawyers. And of course, I was the only black lawyer uh, there. It was, it was a positive experience. I, I did not uh, experience any uh, overt uh, racism there. Uh, I, there was there were a couple of things that happened that were a little bit subtle, and, and I can describe uh, a couple of them. Uh, I remember one day uh, I had to go speak to one of the. Uh, actually, I think he was the uh, the office manager about something, and I went to his door, and his door was closed, and I heard him. We we had a full time investigator. And I heard him sort of in a muffled tone through the door before I knocked on the door. Something to the effect, have you seen Buckwheat today? Well, being the only African American on staff, I mean, who, you know, who, who were they talking about? And so, I mean, I went back to my office and I, and I sort of thought about it and I, and I said, well, what is the re appropriate response to this? I mean, do I go to the boss or do I confront them, you know, myself? And, and I, I just kind of thought about it and said, well, they, they didn't say it to me. They didn't know that I heard it. So I just, I just opted to just, to just let it go. Uh, there was another 
kind of an interesting situ situation uh, that came up. There was a uh, there was a, a, a policeman, a white policeman on the, on the police force at the time, who had a real history of being abusive to to, to black people uh, in the community. He had dozens of uh, well, several complaints, and one that really made the uh, made the, the news, made the media, was where he had beat up a black woman. And clearly, uh, you know, most people thought it was unjustified. So, so of course, uh, he was sued by the woman, and uh, they wanted me to defend him. And so, again, you know, there's a decision that I have to make. I mean, I have to support my family, you know, and, uh, you know, and, but, but it's just something that I think is going to be very uh, distasteful to me. So I, I, I thought about it, and I just, I just told, you know, my boss that I, I couldn't do it. And uh, as far as I, you know, to, to, to his credit, as far as I know, there was never any, you know, any repercussions or, or negative uh, feedback from it. I think the thing that sort of, that sort of uh, made me, pushed me to the decision that I made was that they had never asked me to be lead counsel in a case before. So why, why this one? And I think the, ob the, the question is, is kind of obvious. So uh, the answer to the question was, was obvious. So I just, I just decided, you know, if I have to get another job, I'll just have to get another, another job. And my mother was, uh, was very, uh, she just wanted the best for her, uh, her kids, and she was very protective. I, I can remember, and she was she's very uh, kind of nervous, and she didn't want us to play football and all kinds of things like that. Well, of course, we did it anyway. But she, it just seems to me like she was just really overprotective. And and sometimes I think back, and I'm going like, well, you know, it's it's kind of amazing that we were able to do the stuff that we did because if we listened to her, we would have never done anything. And my father was was quiet and I and I kind of take after him he didn't really uh, talk to us uh, uh, a lot but you could kind of tell the way that he felt about us number one be, you know from the way he worked and the way that he, he took care of us but whenever we had an accomplishment like in school or whatever he was just like he would just beam with pride and you know and he bragged to all of his friends he was a bartender at the Ponte Vedra Club in, 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 in Ponte Vedra, right outside of Jacksonville. He did that for like 40 years. And of course, at that time, you know, blacks weren't allowed, you know, to, uh, to go there. We couldn't afford it even if we wanted, if, you know, if we wanted to. So I can remember about six years ago, I went to visit my mom and I said, you know what, I think I'm gonna stay at the Ponte Vedra Club. <laughs> so I stayed at the Ponte Vedra Club. And so uh, that was kind of like a milestone. And then, you know, I started playing golf, uh, not, you know, about four years ago. And so I actually played, played golf there uh, last year. So that was kind of a milestone. Also, you know, which, you know, if my dad was alive and he could see that, you know, no telling what his reaction would be, you know. You know, growing up in Florida, you know, uh, you would think that, uh, you know, I, I did a lot of swimming uh, growing up. 
and and I did I did swim, but but during those days, uh, black people were were limited in in where they could swim. Uh, there was one uh, uh, public swimming pool in St. Petersburg that that I could use, and it was called Jenny Jenny Hall Pool. And there's a there's a, the history with that is uh, there were no uh, places for for black people to swim in, in uh, St. Petersburg uh, back then. So this white woman whose name was Jenny Hall actually donated the money to build a swimming pool on the south side of St. Petersburg for black people to swim. And, uh, and the, the swimming pool still bears her name. Uh, there was one place that I can recall that we could swim down on the bay and it was called the South Mole, I think. And I have uh, subsequently learned that that was the swimming outlet that was closest to where the city dumped the sewage in those days, which of course growing up I knew nothing about that. Uh, as, a, as a child growing up in Jacksonville, I lived 10 blocks from the Atlantic Ocean, but we were not allowed to swim in the Atlantic Ocean. So, uh, in order to swim, we had to drive over to Fernandina in American Beach. I can barely remember uh, American Beach, but it was, it, 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 from what I understand, it was quite a place. They had black-owned hotels and nightclubs and restaurants, uh, a whole strip, and people would come, well-to-do black people would come from all over the country and, and, vac and vacation there. I understand that a sizable uh, number uh, of, of uh, properties there are still owned by, by black families that have been in, in the families uh, for, for generations. So uh, I, can, I can recall uh, driving back from after a day at the beach. It, it, as I recall, it was because you had to take a ferry and it was probably like an hour and a half drive, you know. And I can recall uh, driving back late at night, uh, you know, with my family. And if somebody had to go to the bathroom, of course, you had to pull it to the side of the road because you couldn't use, like, the public facilities. So it was just kind of one of those indignities that you had to get through, you know, in those days when you were, uh, when you were black. Mr. Odom shared with us some very important stories particularly about his life growing up in Florida and the Tampa Bay area and his experience with segregation and the impact that had on his life and his worldview. My impression of Mr. Odom is that he is very humble, but don't underestimate the important work that he did, not only as a pioneering attorney in the government offices in Tampa Bay, but also the work to dismantle segregation and exclusion and to create access for everyone in Tampa Bay. For more information on Journey to Esquire and oral history, visit our website, www.journeytoesquire.com. I'd like to give a special thanks to all of our supporters, especially our JD level sponsors, U.S. District Courts, Middle District of Florida's Bench Bar Fund, and Agape Christian Bar Preparation Services, Inc. for their generous support. I'd also like to thank WMU Cooley Law School, Tampa Bay campus, for providing a space for the recording of several of the episodes of this podcast. 
Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another great episode of Journey to Esquire, the podcast. Support, share, subscribe. And for more, visit www.journeytoesquire.com.